Welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the first season of the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick and I'm here with Wendy and with our pandemic episode out of the way, we're ready to really get going on this Camino, right? Yeah, I'm ready to put this pandemic thing behind us, so uh, let's move on. Yeah, I think everybody's ready for that, but uh, it doesn't work quite that way. Uh, I'm sure the pandemic is going to make its way in and out of these subsequent episodes as well, but um, we'll do our best to uh, steer clear of it when we can. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So for today's episode, we'd like to focus on the simple idea of what it's like to walk the Camino de Santiago in Portugal. Of course, the people who walk the Camino de Santiago in Spain find that Camino culture is fused with Spanish culture as they're walking. It's so associated with Spain and with good reason, of course, uh, because that's where the majority of the routes are. That's obviously where Santiago de Compostela is. Um, but if you're going to walk the Portuguese Camino, then you're going to be walking a fair bit of the time in Portugal. Yeah, and so it's fairly unusual in, you know, the Camino world to be walking in a country that's not Spain. Obviously, you can start in France or you can start even in other countries further away from Spain. You could start all the way in the Netherlands if you wanted to and walk all the way to Santiago from there. But generally, people who are walking the Camino are walking almost entirely in Spain, no matter which of the many different Caminos they're walking. Uh, with the exception of the Portuguese Camino, which of course starts in Portugal. Right, so if you walk from Porto, which is where the majority of people begin from, you're going to be walking about half of your time in Portugal and about half of your time in Spain. If you walk from Lisbon, which is what we did, you're going to be walking 80-85% of your Camino is going to be in Portugal, and that's going to allow you to get a kind of deeper understanding of Portuguese culture as you're going. And as we're going to be talking about walking in Portugal, it is important to note that there is quite a difference between walking between Lisbon and Porto and then walking from Porto onwards. There are a lot more pilgrims, there's a lot more pilgrim infrastructure after Porto, and so it is kind of a different experience. We almost walked two Caminos in one. Uh, in a certain sense. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that. There was definitely a different vibe. Um, and also, um, Portugal, the country changes a bit once you get further up north as well. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. Right. So to begin with, I think it's just worth noting, obviously, that Portugal is a different country from Spain. And although they're both countries that are in southern Europe, they're both in the Iberian Peninsula. So they're often lumped together. Um, but they are obviously separate countries with separate cultures. And I think... For some people, perhaps Portugal is more different from Spain than what they had thought. Yeah, I guess it does often get lumped together with Spain, but uh, the Portuguese have a very strong sense of their own identity, uh, which is not Spanish. That's probably the, the most important aspect of being Portuguese, is that you're not Spanish. Right, yeah, that's definitely true. And when I give tours in Lisbon, which I did before the pandemic hit, I used to say almost exactly that line all the time. Um, and so just to touch on it a little bit, Another thing I used to say on my tours is that basically if you go through the entirety of Portuguese history over the last nine, nearly ten centuries, the one single thread that runs through all of it is this desire to attain 
and maintain Portuguese independence from Spain. And that just runs through every century throughout the history of Portugal. And so that's been a fierce rivalry for many, many centuries. These days, of course, Portugal and Spain are friends and allies. For Portugal, it's their only neighbor. And so it's obviously an extremely important ally. Uh, and so they don't have that rivalry at the, the national or the political level anymore. But I think at the personal level here in Portugal, there's a little bit of rivalry with the Spanish. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair to say that, um, yeah, uh, Portuguese people do, you know, have certain feelings about Spaniards, which are not always positive. And this identity that you mentioned um, within Portugal, which separates them from Spain, is one thing that helped keep Portugal independent. Basically, as we went through the Middle Ages and beyond, all of these other kingdoms in the Iberian Peninsula ended up getting gobbled up by Castile and Leon, uh, except Portugal. Portugal actually did fall under the sway of the Spanish crown for 60 years between 1580 and 1640. But by that point, the Portuguese identity was already set. And I think that's a, played a huge role in the idea that Portugal already was too far removed from Spain to basically be able to tolerate being ruled by Spain. And then Portugal got its independence back in 1640. And that's still this enormous uh, historical event, you know, even down to this day in Portugal when they got their independence back from Spain and then were able to sort of travel their own path again. Yeah, um, Portuguese are still mortified that they uh, became part of Spain at one point and then, of course, were thrilled to then regain their independence. So there are lots of monuments to the restoration of the independence of Portugal, and it's a very, very important event still now, hundreds of years later. Yeah, definitely. And so just a final note on this is that in Portugal, there's an expression uh, and I'll just uh, say it out in Portuguese, which is de Espanha nem bom vento, nem bom casamento. And so it translates to uh, from Spain, you don't get good wind or good marriages, uh, which sounds like a funny expression, but there is, a, there is a reason for it. And so the idea with the wind is that it's a literal wind because in Portugal you have a sea breeze coming from the west. They also have a wind coming from the mountainous areas of Spain in the east, and they don't like this wind. They think it's quite unpleasant and, and it's just not something that they like at all. And so they kind of blame Spain for bringing this wind to them. Uh, the part about uh, Casamento, about marriages, relates to dynastic marriages centuries ago, uh, where if there would be a, a political alliance marriage between a Spanish ruler and a, and a Portuguese ruler or the offspring of those rulers, sometimes that didn't work out too well for Portugal. In one example, this basically led to the Easter massacre of 1506, which is a dark period in the history of Portugal. And so they still remember all of this stuff and it's all kind of encapsulated in this one expression. And we actually I mean, we knew about this expression already, but we met some Portuguese pilgrims who used the expression while we were on the Camino. So it's something that's still kind of close to the heart of Portuguese people. Yep, it's very real. All right, so we've been talking about this Portuguese cultural identity. Let's just touch on it a little bit, um, just to let people know about the kinds of things that they can expect to see when they're in Portugal or the kinds of things to look out for in terms of the, the identity of the Portuguese people and Portuguese nation. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the obvious ones is a very typical kind of music in Portugal, which is called Faru. It's a very emotive music and you like it especially. I love Faru, yes. Um, yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do in Lisbon is to go to um, one of these, you know, tiny Fado bars and listen to uh, amateur singers singing their heart out, singing Fado. Um, people often say that it's a depressing kind of music. And it's true that a lot of the lyrics are
are quite sad. Um, it, they're often, you know, stories of unrequited love or love that has gone wrong. But not all of them are sad. That's not a prerequisite. Uh, there are some happy photo songs. But one thing that is a prerequisite is that it has to be full of emotion. Like that emotion, emotion can be sad, it can be happy, it can, it doesn't really matter, but you have to really put your heart and soul into it when you're singing Fado. And, and that really comes across. And it's become quite popular, uh, in the past decade or so among tourists coming to Portugal and to Lisbon in particular. And I think a part of the reason that, um, it really resonates with people even if they don't speak a single word of Portuguese, is that you can really feel that emotion so strongly and it doesn't matter that you don't know exactly what they're saying, you still get it just by being in the same room with these singers. So it's something very powerful. And for pilgrims who are walking in the Canina de Santiago, if they start in Lisbon, you can hear Fado in Lisbon, which is where Fado was born. A little bit further up on the Camino, when you get to Coimbra, which is one of the great cities of the, of the Portuguese Camino, uh, you can hear a different school of Fado. So it's 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 still Fado, but it's completely different, actually. So you can kind of compare the two and see which one you like best. I like the Lisbon version, <laughs> just for the record. Um, another very notable part of Portuguese culture and Portuguese architecture are azulejos, which are painted tiles. And you see this pretty much all over Portugal, or especially uh, in Lisbon and Porto, the two main cities of Portugal and in the central uh, towards the southern regions of Portugal. And these can be painted pattern tiles, which are very colorful on the facades of buildings. And it can also be artwork, which is done entirely in this azulejo form. And this is usually uh, blue and white with some yellow, uh, which are Camino colors as well. So that fits quite nicely. That's true. Yeah, I never thought about that. And so when you go into churches or monasteries on Camino while you're in Portugal, um, it's quite common that you'll see uh, the walls of these churches decorated with azulejo artwork, and it's really a, a beautiful thing to look at and unique to Portugal. Yeah, uh, sometimes in monasteries, you know, in the old dining hall, you'll see just all the walls completely covered with these huge panels um, where they will use these individual square tiles that will be hand-painted, and you put maybe... 50 or 100 of those tiles together and it forms a, a painting or a, an image. It could be a landscape image. It could be a religious image of, say, the crucifixion or another Bible story. Um, but it's a very important form of art in Portugal and also a big part of the architecture as well. Right. And speaking of the architecture, there's also a unique form of architecture in Portugal, which is called Memueline. It's named after King Manuel, who ruled in the late 15th, early 16th century. And Memueline architecture is a form of late Gothic architecture. But what it does is it takes the motifs of the Portuguese Age of Discovery, so navigational motifs like ropes, like anchors, like the armillary sphere, which is a navigational instrument, and it incorporates this into the architecture itself. So you're looking at the facade of a building and you might see columns either side of the main doorway and then you'll see these um, marble ropes which are twisting down the sides of the columns or you'll see anchors above the door and things like that. Um, and that's uh, another unique uh, thing here in Portugal. And if you're on Camino, one of the best places to see it, apart from outside of Lisbon, if you start from Lisbon, uh, in a place called Belém. But one of the other places to see it is in Tomar, and there's a castle convent called the Convento do Cristo, and there's a famous Memeline window there. Uh, and it's not the entire 
building or the entire castle is not Memoline. This is an addition to it, but it's this famous window. It's probably almost the most famous window in all of Portugal is this one particular one in Tomar. Yeah, that's probably fair to say. And it's a beautiful building, not just for the window, but there's so much to see there and it's really incredible. So um, I definitely re- recommend taking a rest day in Tomar to go up and to see the Convento de Cristo. You probably wouldn't go to see it if you were just passing through and not taking a rest day because it is you know, quite a hike up a hill and uh, you'll need some time to see it, but it's definitely worth it. It's one of the highlights of the Camino, I would say. Yeah, I agree. And we'll talk about it a little bit more in our next episode. Uh, Food and drink are also uh, an important part of the Portuguese culture as they are in the Spanish culture, but there's some uh, different forms of food and drink here. And actually talking about food and one particular form of food, one particular Portuguese dish, which is called cataplana, and talking about fado earlier, as you did, we had a very unexpected evening where both of these were combined on the Camino. Yeah, that was probably one of my fondest memories of our Portuguese Camino and even one of my fondest memories of all the time that we've spent in Portugal uh, living here for the past few years. It was just such a very Portuguese moment. We were sat outside at this restaurant, so, um, you know, we're eating out in the open air on the esplanade in front of the the building and they brought out this cataplana, which is... Um, it typically comes from the south. You'll see it a lot more in the Algarve down near the coast, but you can also sometimes find it um, further up in central or even northern Portugal as well. So when we when this happened, we were in a town called Vila Nova de Barquinha, mm-hmm. um, which is actually slightly off the Camino. That was uh, one of the times that we... Uh, had to be a bit creative because of the accommodation closures and so we ended up going to Barquinho which we hadn't planned to go to but it was great we really loved it there and we had this amazing cataplana um, which is kind of a stew that's cooked inside a dish the dish the thing that you cook it in is also called cataplana as well as the dish in the sense of the the food that you eat um they're both referred to as cataplana and it can you can have anything in there i think what are the three ingredients that you're always supposed to have it's tomatoes and onions onions and peppers um and then you can just throw in whatever else you happen to have um it actually originated from fishermen who would take this this cataplana, which is kind of a metal pot, um, out with them on the boat, and then also take these three ingredients and then throw in whatever they happen to catch when they were out there and and cook up the stew. Um, so it is often seafood, but it doesn't have to be. Um, you can get a fully veggie one as well, and it's really delicious. And yeah, that night, just sitting out there uh, on this beautiful little square uh, and we heard Fado that was coming out of the house next door to the restaurant. And usually when you hear Fado in Lisbon, it's coming from some kind of tourist shop or or a restaurant or some business that's trying to attract tourists. But this was just a woman who was enjoying listening to Fado in her own home, um, an elderly woman who had her window open and we could see her at her window. And then it was just getting dark. And so the light, street lamps started coming on and it was just such a quintessential Portuguese scene. Um, that I think I'll always remember it. 
Yep, and we certainly were drinking wine as well, which is also something quintessentially <laughs> Portuguese. Uh, and so moving to that, there are two specific kinds of wine in Portugal, especially around Porto, uh, that are unique to Portugal. Uh, one is called Vinho Verde, which is a green wine, or a so-called green wine. And the other is port wine, which is a fortified wine. Uh, which of these two do you like the most? Um, I like Vinho Verde, but that's probably because... Uh, long, long ago in my youth, I had a big night with port wine, and so I haven't really been able to drink it since then. All right, so that's just a few basic um, features of Portuguese identity that separates it a little bit from Spain. But what's interesting about this whole dynamic is that what we've been saying is that Portugal and Spain have these differences, and if you were to fly, let's say, from Lisbon to Madrid, then you would notice these differences straight away. You'd be really aware that you're in a different country with different customs and things like that. Mm -hmm. The thing that makes it really interesting, though, is that if you walk the Portuguese Camino, and especially if you only start in Porto, you'll be walking in northern Portugal, and then you'll cross into Spain. And when you cross into Spain, you're already in Galicia. And so you, the entire rest of your Camino uh, to Santiago will be in Galicia. And the thing is that the culture of northern Portugal and the culture of Galicia are very close. Mm -hmm. And just as a way of demonstrating that, we saw when we were in Galicia uh, a few tourist information signs at various sites, and the signs were put there by the Galician Portuguese Cultural Tourism Network. And um, it was it was really quite fascinating for us to see because they had this multilingual sign and they were explaining certain things. And there was one sentence that really jumped out to me, and I've translated it, and this is what it says. Situated in the northeast of the Iberian Peninsula, the Euro region formed by the south of Galicia and the north of Portugal comprises a space of important cultural, social and economic relations with an attractive and singular cultural identity. So they're basically saying that Galicia and northern Portugal have the same cultural identity. Yeah, which is quite amazing. I mean, we're in this age where the nation state rules everything and, and each nation is taught that their nation is unique and that it, there's nothing else quite like it. And we've just been explaining the differences between Spain and Portugal uh, in a certain sense. But this particular part of Portugal and this particular part of Spain are very close together. And this goes back centuries. Mm -hmm. And so it shows that these, you know, in a place like Europe, some of these... Uh, old customs can can outlive the creation of modern nation states. Yeah, and you know, Portuguese people view Galicians differently than they would view Spaniards from other parts of Spain as well. They do have, uh, without speaking on their behalf, but I've heard Portuguese people say this that um, you know they have more of a brotherly kind of. A connection with them. The Galician language is very, very similar to Portuguese. Some people even claim that it's not a separate language, that it's a dialect of Portuguese, and they can largely understand each other when they uh, one speaks Portuguese and one speaks Galician. So there's lots of cultural similarities. And especially in the north, the accent spoken by the Portuguese is even closer to uh, the language spoken in Galicia. Mm -hmm. uh, a few other similarities that, that are quite... Um, Obvious is the architectural design and materials used. Um, you know, we've been talking about the azulejos in Portugal, which are just a riot of color. And you see those, uh, as we said, in places like Lisbon and even up to Porto. But then once you go north of Porto, you're starting to see uh, buildings that are made with gray stone and have whitewashed facades or whitewashed uh, or white coverings around windows and things like that. And that's very similar to Glacia. Yeah, you see that same style of architecture uh, definitely in Santiago and also in Tui and Pontevedra and other cities that you pass through on the Camino. And just a, a final point on this is that in Portugal, there's a concept 
which is supposed to define the Portuguese more than anything else, and it's called saudade. And this is a sort of nostalgic longing, and it's a very emotional feeling, and it's said that this is unique to the Portuguese, and it's also an untranslatable word. Um, it's one of the ten most difficult words to translate in the whole world. But of course, it turns out that in Galego, the language of Galicia, they have um, a similar concept, mm-hmm. and it's called morinha, um, but it sort of means the same thing, right? Yeah, I think it has a bit more of a specific meaning. Morinha in Galicia is uh, specifically this longing for your homeland, uh, your homeland being Galicia. Um, so it's usually used by uh, immigrants who have left Galicia and they're living maybe in Portugal or uh, elsewhere in Spain or in another country. And they have this longing feeling for the place where they come from. Whereas saudade is, a, is more general. You can have saudade for a lot of things, not necessarily just the place where you come from. Right, definitely. But it is interesting that it did kind of begin to become part of the Portuguese culture during the Age of Discovery when Portuguese sailors were were away from Portugal and had that longing for their homeland. So it's maybe rooted in the same idea, although it's expanded in the Portuguese case. Mm-hmm. So how does this play out when you're on Camino or how did it play out for us when we were on Camino? Uh, one of the other things that is very famous from Galicia, uh, what's called orios, which are these granaries that are individual raised granaries that you see next to farmhouses and things like that. And you see them everywhere in Galicia. And around where we are, around Lisbon, you don't see them at all. We were walking in Portugal for a few weeks and we didn't see any. And then just a couple of days south of Porto, just as we were starting to hit the north of Portugal, one day we saw six just out of the blue. We hadn't seen any before. And we started to think, oh, we're getting close to Galicia now, even though we still had another probably eight days to walk in Portugal before we actually got to Galicia, but we felt that it was, we were starting to kind of cross that individual line between the rest of Portugal and the part of Portugal that's close to Galicia. Yeah, and I was surprised to see that that line was so far down. I didn't expect to see Orios, um, you know, that far down into Portugal, but I think it is just one example of how the culture up in that northern part of Portugal does have a lot of connections with Galicia. And we also saw Galician-style buildings that same day as well, and so that just helped cement this idea that we were getting closer. And what was quite amazing was that that night we were at a restaurant in a town called San Juan de Madeira, and we were talking with the restaurant owner who was very friendly and very chatty, and he was talking to us in Portuguese about all kinds of things. Uh, he also gave us some free port wine because we were pilgrims um, as an aperitif uh, before our meal, which was very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, But he was saying that essentially northern Portuguese people have more in common with Galicia than they do with the rest of Portugal. Mm. And so that's already quite interesting. But then as he continued to talk, I think it it took on an even greater meaning because he used this word, which is probably not a real word, but his word was Portugalidad, which in English would be Mm Portuguese-ness. And he was saying essentially that this Portuguese-ness is rooted in the North. And of course it is, and we we knew that from a historical point of view because Portugal began in the very North of Portugal. It was originally some land that was carved out of Galicia, uh, and then it gradually grew, it became independent, and then it started to move South um, later on. But so all of the places that are related to the founding of Portugal are way up in the North of Portugal. Mm -hmm. And so he was basically saying, you know, this part of Portugal, this is Portugal. Right. And this other part further south is kind of less Portugal, but this other part of another country just a bit north of here, well, that's kind of Portugal almost too. Yeah. So 
basically saying Galicia is more Portugal than Lisbon is, which is really interesting. Uh, I had nev never heard that before and never thought of it that way before. And I think probably Lisboetas, people from Lisbon, would disagree. But yeah, it's an interesting concept. And even to this day, people from Portugal call people from Lisbon Moors, uh, which is their word for the Muslims who were in the Iberian Peninsula at that time. It's been now 870 years since Lisbon was recaptured from the Moors, but um, that tradition continues and people from the north still call people from Lisbon Moors, even to this day. All right, moving on to a few other aspects of what it's like to walk in Portugal. And one of the things you realize, especially if you walk from Lisbon, is that when you're walking the Camino de Santiago in Portugal, you are not walking the most famous pilgrimage route in Portugal. Nope, you're not. <laughs> and so that route is the route to Fatima. Fatima is a place in central Portugal where in 1917, three shepherd children saw an apparition of the Virgin Mary in the sky. And then this became uh, a very famous pilgrimage destination and a famous place within Portugal. And so when people are walking, you know, in the central Portuguese region, it's kind of assumed that they're going to Fatima. And for Portuguese people, uh, if they're going to make a pilgrimage, that's likely where they're going to go. Because Santiago, it doesn't really belong to the Portuguese, right? That's obviously in Spain, even if you're walking throughout Portugal to get there, whereas Fatima is completely Portuguese, so it's something that they can have for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and particularly if you're starting from Lisbon, um, you know, Fatima is only a few days walk away from Lisbon, so it's much closer than Santiago is. So people will definitely assume, especially in the early days, um, that, that you're walking to Fatima and not to Santiago. And they might be surprised and a bit confused to learn that you're not, in fact, walking to Fatima. Right. I mean, Santiago is just so far away and it's just such a foreign concept if you're down around the Lisbon area um, that, yeah, they, they can't imagine that you're walking that far. Once you're up north of Porto, then it's kind of obvious uh, typically that you're walking to Santiago. So Fatima is marked out by blue arrows uh, as opposed to the yellow arrows of the Camino. And when you're walking from Lisbon up to Santarém, which can take from between three to five days, depending on, on how much you walk each day, the Camino is the same as the route to Fatima. So you're just following the same arrows uh, for both. Then the paths separate from each other. Once you get past Tomar, if you're walking north to Santiago, then the route to Fatima is coming against you because it's people walking from the north of Portugal walking south towards Fatima. So as you're walking north, you have arrows, yellow arrows going one way and then blue arrows coming the other way. And what we noticed was that the arrows and the signage and everything for Fatima was was better than it was for the Camino during that period kind of between Tomar and Porto. Yeah. So, for example, like sometimes just as we were leaving a village or a town, we would see this sign at the end of the town that was telling you about the history of the town and all of the landmarks and things that you could see there. But we had just passed it. It was too late for us. And that was because it was intended for people who were walking the other way, who were walking to Fatima. And they hadn't bothered yet to put up a similar kind of sign on the other side of the town for people who were walking to Santiago. I imagine that the signage is controlled by two different associations. And um, so, yeah, maybe we just need to encourage the Camino Association to, to do a bit more. But um, yeah, you definitely feel like you're kind of a second class citizen <laughs> as, a, as a person walking to Santiago because, um, yeah, you can tell that they weren't really thinking of you when they put all this stuff up. <laughs> um, and so this presence of the route to Fatima and also the lack of 
pilgrim infrastructure between Lisbon and Porto means that as you're walking in Portugal, sometimes there's a perhaps a lack of Camino culture uh, compared with when you're walking in Spain. I mean, pretty much anywhere in Spain, if people see you with a backpack and kind of see that you, you know, they see the shell on your backpack, for example, that's a dead giveaway that you're walking to Santiago. Mm-hmm. I remember last year walking the Camino de Madrid, um, there was a really nice moment. And the Camino de Madrid is a really... Um, it's not a well-traveled route at all. And so we walked for 13 days. We only saw six other pilgrims. So it's not like the Camino Frances or like the Primitivo or the Della Norte. Um, it's not really popular. And one day we were walking and there were these construction guys doing some work on the side of the of the road. And one of them just saw me and he yelled out, Bravo, bravo, Camino de Santiago. And you just have that that energy sometimes coming from the locals. They know what you're doing. They know where you're going, even though we were absolutely nowhere near Santiago at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we weren't even going all the way to Santiago on that Camino anyway. Um, but there's just it's just inbuilt into the Spanish culture that the Camino de Santiago is something that people do in that country. And in Portugal, it's a little bit different, especially in this early stretch between Lisbon and Porto. So the greeting that you get in Spain a lot, of course, is Buen Camino. The Portuguese equivalent is Bon Camino. And we didn't hear that at all in the first probably nearly three weeks of our Camino. No, and I kind of, you know, felt like it was missing. I mean, people would say Bon Dia, which is a general greeting for hello, good morning. Um, or sometimes they would say other things like Boa Viaging, which just means have a good trip, <laughs> which is kind of anything to say. Or Boa Caminhada. Uh, which is have a nice walk. Um, so, you know, you could tell that they were being friendly and they wanted to, um, you know, wish us uh, well on our journey, but there wasn't an automatic phrase that came to their mind to say to someone who was doing what we were doing because it, it wasn't familiar to them like it would have been to someone in Spain. And even much later when we were already in Spain, we met these Portuguese pilgrims and they'd started from Porto or even further north of Porto. And they were, they all live around Lisbon, I believe, but they were amazed that we'd started in Lisbon. Right. And because they just hadn't even occurred to them or they didn't know that you could do that or, you know, it's just not part of the, the culture of the country, at least in until you get further north. And the other example that really uh, shows this is that we stayed at two particular albergues, which are quite well known. One of them in particular, very well known, Casa de Fernanda. Uh, and in both of the cases, Paula, who was at the other alberga, Quinta de Buja, and Fernanda bought their houses without having any idea that they were right on the Camino itself and that they could open um, a pilgrim albergue. Yeah, it's actually a really beautiful story. Both of them have very similar stories, which I just found so inspiring. The on, the way that they found out in both cases was a pilgrim knocked on their door and needed help, um, you know, because it was pouring down rain or because they just couldn't walk any further and there was nowhere nearby to stay. And so these women just allowed these people to come and sleep inside their home. And then the word spread that, hey, there's this woman that will let you sleep here. Um, and, you know, the Camino kind of telephone thing that uh, happens, whether it was on the forum or, you know, just word of mouth um, between pilgrims. And so more and more pilgrims started coming. And so now they've both become very popular albergues um, that are known for their hospitality and um, for their lovely communal dinners that they provide. And um, but it, and they've turned into these, you know, iconic Camino angels, because that's where they were. They they helped out pilgrims who were in need when they didn't even know that pilgrimage was a thing. Um, and then when they discovered that these pilgrims were passing by their house and that they could 
um, be of service, then then they started providing that service, and now they've been doing it for years and years, and it's a really beautiful thing. Definitely. All right, just to finish up with a few practical differences between walking in Portugal and walking in Spain. Uh, one, certainly on the positive side for Portugal, is that the eating time is much earlier, especially for dinner. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Portuguese people tend to eat out at about eight o'clock, and restaurants will be open usually from around seven o'clock. So that's a good pilgrim hour for eating dinner, because pilgrims like to be you know, in bed and, and nicely tucked up and asleep by 9.30 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, in Spain, they start eating at around 10 p.m., um, and if you're not on a very famous route like the Camino Frances, uh, then it can be difficult to get a meal because restaurants aren't open until eight or nine sometimes. Yeah, on the Frances, it's a little bit different because there are so many pilgrims that, um, you know, it's feasible for restaurants to open, uh, even though no one's going to come except pilgrims at that time. So they might open earlier at uh, six or seven. Um, but yeah, in, in other, on other Caminos, that's not the case. And yeah, you might have to wait around until nine o'clock before anywhere will open for you. So that can be really annoying. Um, <laughs> I have a hard time dealing with the late dining habits of Spaniards, even when I'm just in Spain as a tourist. But when I'm on Sp- in Spain on Camino, then I just can't handle it. But no problems like that in Portugal, even from the Lisbon to Porto stretch, where there weren't really restaurants catering for pilgrims no. at all. No. Uh, pretty much we were still able to eat at a time that suited us. Mm-hmm. Speaking of time, uh, as we all know, Spain is kind of on the wrong time zone. Uh, it's one hour ahead of where it should be, which suits the late night eating and the late night habits of the Spanish. And when you're walking in the very western part of Spain, when you're walking in Galicia, this poses a real problem because sunrise is so late. Sunrise for us, by the time we crossed into Spain, was 8.25, 8.30. And we were waking up at 6 o'clock, and uh, we just had to kind of twiddle our thumbs until it was light enough to start walking. Yeah, because we had pretty quickly gotten into a habit of, of waking up early. Um, you know, starting out from Lisbon, we would... I'd say about three or four days in, we started getting up in time to see the sunrise, which, you know, was uh, 6.40, 6. Uh, no, we would start walking around 6.40 or right. 6.45, and then sunrise would be a little after 7, and then it started getting, you know, a few minutes later each day, and then, yeah, by the time we had crossed the border into Spain, it was, you know, already maybe 10 or 15 minutes later, and the time zone changed, so then it was actually an hour and 15 minutes later, and it just felt so late to, to start walking, you know, after 8 o'clock. Yeah, and so we'd get it to be 11 or 12, and we'd sort of think, you know, we must have done a fair bit, but no, because we, we started at 8 o'clock, we haven't really walked that far yet. Yeah. Uh, but in Portugal, we didn't have that problem, which was, which was good. Portugal is also cheaper than Spain uh, in, in pretty much everything that you're, that you're going to need to pay for, uh, which is just a nice little bonus. If you're coming from Northern Europe or the UK, um, Spain already can feel uh, reasonably cheap, but Portugal's uh, cheaper uh, still. Yeah, I'd say it's the cheapest country in Western Europe. I think that's safe to say. Yeah. And then just a final note about walking in Portugal, you do have to be prepared for this. And that is walking on the road, walking on asphalt uh, for certain sections, especially that Lisbon to Porto section. And then after you go north from Porto, you're going to have a different challenge, and that's cobblestones. Yeah, I was complaining about the asphalt until we got to the cobblestones, and then I was like, please, just give me asphalt, I'll take that. Um, I have problems with my feet, I have plantar fasciitis, so um, I'm often walking in pain anyway, and the cobblestones definitely made that worse. 
and I had heard about it. I'd heard people complain about cobblestones in Portugal, but I thought that they were talking about what in Portugal is called um, calçada portuguesa, which just means Portuguese sidewalk or Portuguese pavement, and um, you find it in cities, typically. You find it all over Lisbon, for example, and also Porto and other cities. Um, so they're quite small stones that are placed close together and make some kind of geometric pattern or, um, yeah, sometimes they're quite intricate designs and it's, it's a very famous um, aspect of, of Portuguese, I guess you'd say architecture. Um, you'll also see it in the former Portuguese colonies. You see it in Brazil and in African former colonies. Um, so I thought that people were just using the word cobblestones because they didn't know that there was a, you know, specific name for calçada portuguesa. But no, um, and, and I also, you know, because I had that in my head, I also thought it was only going to be in the cities and that we wouldn't encounter this calçada portuguesa, you know, out in rural countryside. I was wrong on both counts. Um, no, they were actually talking about real cobblestones, which I find much more difficult to walk on. And they were in rural areas out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and also in smaller towns and villages. And then in the larger cities, then you have the Calçada Portuguesa, which I still don't really like, but um, <laughs> it was not as painful as the cobblestones. So be forewarned if you, you know, if you have problems with your feet, like I do, or with your knees, uh, make sure you're wearing shoes with lots of support and cushioning because it really can take its toll. Yeah, and the cobblestones were mostly, I would say, the first three days walking on the central route out of Porto, and then after that it kind of stopped and we were walking more on country paths and, and things like that. So it's not the whole way by any stretch, but there are three days in particular where you're going to be walking on cobblestones a lot. Mm -hmm. So it's just something to get ready for, but it gets better after that. Yes. All right, so hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea of what it's like to walk the Camino de Santiago in Portugal. We will continue with our discussion of the Camino Português in the next episode. Until then, bon camino. And bon camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen camino.